Welcome to the 35th episode of Rising Tide, the Ocean Podcast. I'm David Helvarg, and Vicki Nichols Goldstein is on the road. So today we have a special substitute co-host, Lele Shi from the Sierra Club. Welcome aboard, Lele. Thank you. Today we're talking with Dr. Francis Gullen, the well-known marine mammal veterinarian who spent 25 years at the Marine Mammal Center in Sausalito, California. She's now a research associate at the UC Davis School of Veterinary Medicine. She's also one of three members of the U.S. Marine Mammal Commission that provides oversight uh, for any federal action that impacts whales, dolphins, manatees, or other marine mammals and their habitats. So Francis, I met you uh, while you were doing a necropsy on a 215 pound California sea lion that had been shot. You found the rifle slug that eventually led to a criminal conviction. So how does one become a marine mammal vet? Did you grow up wanting to give flipper regular checkups? The days when I was hoping to go to vet school, there was no specialization at vet school in not even marine mammals, but wildlife or zoo medicine or anything. You went to vet school and you studied domestic animals, um, cats, dogs, cattle and horses. So growing up, I'd actually always ridden horses and loved horses. Um, but my father worked in, in fisheries and fisheries management. So at home, I was always surrounded by people interested in fisheries and, and the oceans. So. I sort of combined the two and went to university, studied natural sciences. And then while there, I thought, I really don't want to be a biochemist. I really do want to do something with animals, maybe not horses, but, but maybe understanding how diseases and, and changes in health impact these things that these fisheries friends of my father's um, study and work on. So the sort of different skeins really came together. And while at vet school, I was interested in medicine and interested in processes and how diseases worked, but I really wanted to apply those things that I learned to wildlife. So you're English. You went, you went to Cambridge. You uh, went to med school. I am. I, I'm, I'm English. I actually grew up in, in Italy, and uh, my father was working for the United Nations, for the fisheries department at the FAO, Food and Agriculture Organization in Rome. So I grew up in Rome and then went to England at 18, went to the University of Cambridge and started studying biochemistry, natural sciences, but really didn't see myself as a pure chemist. And after three years of natural sciences, natural sciences, I transferred to the veterinary school and studied veterinary medicine at, at Cambridge. And I was lucky at Cambridge because there were many zoologists and we have a wonderful campus, obviously a town of Cambridge, where I met a lot of people studying wildlife, working in conservation. And so they really introduced me to the idea of taking these skills from vet school into the field and, and working with wildlife. How did you do that? How'd you get to the wildlife and where was that wildlife? Well, back in 1984, there, there weren't jobs for wildlife vets. You didn't just go to the Wildlife Disease Association webpage as you can now and look at a list of jobs. So there, there really weren't any. Um, my first job was with sheep. I then worked at the London Zoo, Zoological Society of London, for a year where I was a house surgeon. So I looked after zoo animals in the zoo, which was wonderful for learning about a whole array of species. You know, we had giant pandas, okapis, birds, wombats, um, you name it, not marine mammals. Um, there were no dolphins in captivity in Britain at the time. And after a year in the zoo, I gradually realized that most of the problems I was treating in these animals were because they were in the zoo. You know, they were on the wrong diet or they were in the wrong social groups or their feet hurt because they were on concrete. 
so I really wanted to get in the field and, and look at wild animals. So I um, initially just volunteered and visited friends of mine who were studying wildlife in Madagascar, in the Galapagos. You know, one of them said they had lemurs with a bad eye. So I said, oh, I'll come and try and figure out what's going on with their eyes. And then a colleague working in Galapagos said, oh, the iguanas are losing their spines. So I thought, oh, I could go and have a look and see if I could figure it out. Um, I didn't get very far. So after doing that for a little bit, I went back to Cambridge and um, studied for a PhD in zoology. So I learned more about basically ecology, uh, zoology, and it really helped me understand sort of the role of parasites in population dynamics of wildlife. Like what, is, what are the diseases doing is distinct from being a clinical vet for a single animal. And then after my PhD, I, I actually returned to, to the London Zoo again. They created a new position in wildlife diseases. And, and then while there, the job at the Marine Mammal Center was advertised and it was for a vet to develop a research program um, studying the animals that, that stranded along the California coast. That was back in 1994. So I thought, well, I'll do that for a year, maybe earn enough money to buy a truck and drive to Alaska. So that year somehow morphed into 25 years. And during that time, I was just really lucky to not only see a plethora of, of re-mammals, but um, be exposed to the health problems and disease that they had. And so it was not just rewarding to treat those animals, but to also investigate those diseases and then try and really think about how to, to stop them. Many of them were consequences of human activities. So that led me away from really clinical medicine and, and more into, into policy. California was sort of a great place to find marine mammals um, since the Marine Mammal Protection Act of the 1970s and the fact that California had protected a lot of habitat for breeding and feeding. Um, California is rich in it, doesn't have like hundreds of thousands of sea lions and gray whales and humpbacks and blue whales and all sorts of uh, life abundant. Absolutely. It's one of the richest places on earth with the coastal upwelling and the protected areas off our coast. So, so yes, I could, I could walk down the road to work and I could treat hundreds of sea lions a month. I could necropsy a blue whale on the local beach. Um, I could watch humpbacks foraging off the Golden Gate Bridge. And so really a wonderful place to, to work and to live. So when you started working at the Marine Mammal Center, um, what were what were the initial issues and problems you dealt with and how did that evolve over time? The commonest, the most abundant animals that come into the Mammal Center are, are California sea lions, um, really because there are so many of them off the California coast, but they also um, do come up on land when they're sick. And what amazed me just in the first week was seeing a sea lion with cancer. And it wasn't just that it was an animal with cancer because cancer had been my understanding was is, is rare in wildlife, but also because the volunteers at the Mammal Center said, "Oh yes, we see that all the time, and we we call it big ball disease because their hind end is swollen." And I was sort of amazed by this that, that there was this cancer that was commonly recognized by the volunteers, but hadn't been you know, documented or the causes of it um, investigated. So so that immediately became something I I was really interested in, and and over the past 25 years have worked with really many collaborators to look at the etiology, the causes of that cancer. So we've delved into potential genetic causes, 
the role of contaminant exposure, um, oncogenic viruses, you know, in people, cervical, cervical cancer is linked to papillomavirus. So that was sort of a big problem from the beginning. And even now this year, um, myself with a group of collaborators have, have just written another paper using data from the past 25 years. So, so that was an immediate um, disease problem and continues to be a, a source of interest. And do you have a sense of what's causing the cancer 25 years later? Oh, we do. It's a combination of, uh, there's a, a herpes virus, which is specific to California sea lions, which is found in the reproductive tract. And in animals with cancer, it's actually in the tissue that's, that's morphing from normal tissue into cancer tissue. But um, the virus alone doesn't just cause cancer because there are healthy animals that have the virus in their reproductive tissues. It's sexually transmitted. So we've also found a link with high levels of organochlorines. So animals that die of cancer have higher levels of organochlorines in their blubber than animals that die from other causes like gunshot, um, especially the DDTs and PCBs. And it's just been interesting this, this year that coincident with our multifactorial paper describing the link with DDT exposure, um, thousands of barrels containing DDT have been identified off the Southern California coast in the foraging habitat of California sea lions. So we're still seeing effects of dumping in the oceans from 30 years ago and having impacts on re mammals high up on the food chain. So that's, you know, that's really, I think one of the sort of top, top worries. A second disease that we've seen a lot of that wasn't um, apparent when I started at the center is poisoning by demoic acid, which is a, a biotoxin produced by harmful algal blooms by red tides. And this, um, this toxin uh, is it's a neurotoxin. So when sea lions eat fish containing the demoic acid, they have seizures and convulsions. And if they don't die and they survive, if they have only low doses of exposure, they can develop epilepsy in, in later life. So this is a real concern, not just for sea lions, but also for humans, because we eat a lot of the same seafood items that, that sea lions eat. I mean, anchovies, sardines, we, we eat them on our pizza. We eat them on our, as we call it now, seizure salad. Um, and also demoic acid can accumulate in, in other seafoods, such as you know, lobsters, crabs, um, mussels. So it's something that um, by studying the disease, the toxicosis in California sea lions, we've learned a lot about the potential impacts of demoic acid exposure on humans. And now a word from our sponsor. That's the sound of a coastal wetland Wetlands and salt marshes provide vital habitat and nurseries for fish, birds, and other wildlife. They act as filters and sponges to clean and store groundwater and protect us from storm surge and wind damage. Unfortunately, unwise development and sea level rise have put coastal wetlands at risk. That's why the Sierra Club Marine Team supports proposals like the Ocean-Based Climate Solutions Act, that would invest in restoring natural coastal systems in order to protect our communities while providing needed jobs. The Sierra Club Marine Team, because 71% of our environment is salty. So Lele, where can people find out more about the Sierra Club Marine Team? 
To learn more about the Sierra Club Marine Team, please visit our Facebook page at facebook.com slash marine action. People should do that. The main work of the Marine Center um, continues to be is, is actually taking care of malnourished sea lions, seals that are malnourished for, for a variety of reasons. Sometimes for hover seals, it's often just that the, pup, the seal is a newborn pup and it was abandoned by its mother because it was disturbed by human activity near the pupping site. So the pup is abandoned, it becomes malnourished, it comes into the Rion Center for treatment and re-release, but the cause of its malnourishment was really just human disturbance. Um, with California sea lions, when there are changes in oceanic, oceanic conditions, such as El Nino, warming waters, prey moving offshore, there can be just a plethora of malnourished sea lions due to their preferred prey not being close to the to the rookeries and there when they're weaning and starting to, to feed. So, so in a busy year, there could be hundreds, if not thousands, of, of malnourished caraponic sea lions along the California coast. Um, so the daily work is really you know, making sure they haven't got any other diseases and feeding them and keeping them wild and releasing them back to places where they can forage. How do you keep them wild? You don't talk to them, you don't pet them, you don't treat them like your dog, <laughs> basically. Sea lions are very smart. So sea lions very quickly learn where their food comes from. Um, and if you're nice to them, they learn that humans are not a threat and they'll come to you for food. So You also would go down to uh, do necropsies to study dead whales when they'd wash up or when they'd be seen floating in the ocean. What's, what's it like to uh, find a dead whale and what do you do when you find one? Well, that's a good question. It's a, it's sort of a cup half empty, cup half full. It's wonderful to see a whale up, up close and personal. You, know, you never really appreciate how big, even a, a small minke whale, but especially you know humpback or a blue whale, how big these animals really are until you're standing next to them on a beach. So it's you know it's wonderful to see them that close. It's also incredibly depressing and dispiriting to have them dead in front of you and not be alive and swimming away. Um, it's also daunting to realize that you somehow got to take this animal apart and find out why it died. Um, it can be exhausting to, to remove layers of blubber and to get down to a part of the skull that you may want to examine to, to see if there's impacts of, of noise. It can be incredibly frustrating because you're just getting to where you want to be and the tide comes in. Um, but overall, I think I've always found it exciting. It's always a challenge. Um, you know, you've got this, you're really privileged to have this little window into, into the world of whales, into the world of what's happening to them. Um, and, and the opportunity to have, maybe it's a few hours, maybe it's a day, maybe it's two days sometimes, to, to really um, examine such an animal closely and take samples that can be used by the study by other people. So it's a, it's a sort of, exciting, daunting, depressing, um, can be completely overwhelming experience. And the human neighbors can't be too thrilled uh, that you're dissecting a large, uh, rapidly decomposing whale on their beach. Um, what happens are. when you're done? They never are. So that's uh, the, one of the biggest challenges of, of examining whales is before you start, you need to know how you're gonna clean up your mess. So, so finding a place that you can either bury the animal, 
or you can leave it to to naturally decompose because because they do um it just needs time and a place where people won't mind the the, sm the smell um and sometimes you can examine them and then tow the carcass away and bury it or deposit it somewhere else you, so all these you, things are great these are logistic challenges you told me you were once about to step onto a floating whale off the coast and notice something yes the day of the blue whale and the white sharks um that was a blue whale that we really wanted to examine because we were concerned that it had been hit by a ship and it was floating outside of the golden gate out um, part way to the farallons and you know a kind fisherman had agreed to take myself and a colleague out on on the boat so that we could get close to it and perhaps at least get some measurements and and um sample it and so i was just putting my wetsuit on and then looked over and this great white shark surfaced it went back under and had taken a chomp out of the out of the blue whale so both myself and the boat captain we sort of looked at each other and i said well maybe i'm not going to go in the water right now and he said maybe you're not going to go in the water right now so i didn't and we came home but fortunately the whale did wash up on the beach the following day so we were still able to examine the skeleton and we did determine that it had been hit by a, a propeller. It had massive propeller wounds down one side. So speaking of ship strikes, which is one of the most significant threats to marine mammal cetaceans in particular um, on both coasts of the US and around the world, um, is there something that we can do that's more effective than changing shipping lanes or hope for some kind of policy implementation beyond recommendations and voluntary actions? for operators of large vessels? Whales can avoid ships if they know they're there and if they have the time to change course. So it's there are a lot of data that show that if, if ships slow down, um, if they're going you know, below 50 knots, it's, it's unlikely that they will kill a whale. If they go below, if their speed is less than 10 knots, they're extremely unlikely to hit a whale. A whale will have time to move away. So the challenge is, is getting large vessels to slow down where there are whales. And, and really how you do it depends on the area, depends on the amount of ship traffic. Um, so efficient ways of, of notifying ship captains of whales presence. I mean, most ship captains do not want to hit a whale. Um, they just need to know that they're there. So um, having ways to inform the shipping industry and then also really educating the shipping industry of where whales are and how effective they can be um, by simply slowing down. So changing a whole shipping lane is, is something more complex, but slowing down is, is relatively easy. And there's been some good success in here in the Bay Area with just a voluntary program to, to reduce ship speed coming through the Golden Gate if whales are present. So, and you're one of only three members of the U.S. Marine Mammal Commission. When did you move from studying disease and, and helping rescue and release marine mammals in California to uh, coming on to the commission that, that helps advise on policy and direction? Actually, well, well, while at the center, I gradually got more involved in policy simply by seeing things keep happening to marine mammals and, and wanting to be more effective at stopping them happening. Slowly, I sat on various federal advisory groups, the Working Group on Unusual Mammal Mortality Events, et cetera. 
and I was a scientific advisor for the commission for a number of years. But it was under um, President Obama's administration, so the commissioners are appointed by the by the president and Senate confirmed. So I was appointed by President Obama, and since then have served in better commas until replaced. So we're now entering a new administration that's likely to to appreciate the commission, and so we we look forward to perhaps some new commissioners. And what are you hoping uh, with? The new administration, the Biden administration is committed to conservation, 30 by 30, 30 percent protection of the ocean as well as the land. Um, what could it do to help our marine mammals out? Well, we've talked about ship strikes. So certainly having places where not only late, you know, ship lanes, but also speeds are, are regulated, are enforced. Um, so as soon as you have uh, another layer of, of protection in a marine protected area that can really help reduce ship strikes. Um, having places that won't be subject to oil and gas exploration, won't be subject to increased noise, use of sonar for either naval activities or for um, exploration. Those, those you know, directly will help marine mammals. And then there are the indirect effects of, of prey. I mean, marine mammals eat fish. They eat a lot of the of the seafood that we eat. Um, also, they are the major cause of mortality worldwide is bycatch in fisheries. So having places where there are not gill nets, where there aren't types of fishing that does kill marine mammals inadvertently um, will absolutely help marine mammals. So there's a lot of um, momentum behind, or rather hope behind moving towards ropeless fishing gear because rope entanglement is a big threat to marine mammals as well. Do you think that this is a this is a reasonable solution or an important thing to pursue? I know a lot of fishermen feel like this is a threat on their livelihoods and they say it's too expensive or too difficult to implement, uh, but it seems like a very important thing considering, um, for example, the North Atlantic right whale of which it's believed that there are fewer than 400 left. Is this something that we should be pursuing? Absolutely. I, um, I'm i no engineer, but I've attended multiple workshops where the manufacturers of the ropeless gear have shown us some of their prototypes and some of their devices. Um, and I've seen you know, uh, videos of it working in, in Australia. Um, the huge, sort of elephant in the room is uh, uh, the economics of you know, how much does it cost to, to make a ropeless piece of equipment? And then how much does it cost the fishermen? How much time does it take to deploy one or two of these versus five or six of, a, of another more traditional method of fishing? Um, so it all comes down to, to um, really thinking through how, how and at what cost are these produced? So somehow we have to get past this, this, um, this sort of nexus of, of how much does it cost to make them and then how do they become useful to the fishermen on a scale that, that is workable? And then how many can you fit on a boat and then how much does it cost and where do you go? It is a way to fish for lobster and crabs without having a vertical line um, and, and it can be done. I know you're a scientist and you try and separate from the animals, but do you have some favorite marine mammals? Well, I love California sea lions because they're always in trouble. 
they're always a cause of trouble. They, they, they create challenges for us, but they're also smart. They, 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 and you see them together on a rookery, um, they're gentle. You have this huge male and it'll have his flipper stretched out over two pucks that are asleep on the sand. They're positively thigmotactic. They like to touch each other. So what is the right thing to do if a sea lion jumps on your surfboard or kayak? Well, first of all, you don't want to hurt your sea lion or yourself. <laughs> so it really depends on the size of the sea lion. Um, if, you're, if you're in the kayak and the sea lion's on it, I would simply sort of wave my arms and, and probably the sea lion will get off. Um, he's going to be probably a surprise to find he's sharing that space with you as, as you ought to have, have him in there. And if a curious harbor seal comes up to you while you're diving? Just carry on doing what you're doing. He's going to be curious. He'll come up and maybe take a look and then turn around and go away. They do. They'll go away. They'll look back at you like you're yeah. a crippled just seal, wondering why you're not playing more actively. Yeah. Just, don't offer them, just don't offer them any fish. What is the status of gray whales and, and uh, the recent numbers of, of gray whales that have turned up dead and, and uh, starved? Is that indicative of anything or is that something you see? Yes. Uh, so the past over the past three years now, there have been an increase in the number of dead whales washing up along the west coast of North America, Canada, Mexico, um, all the way up the coast, really, from the lagoons in Mexico to, to the feeding grounds in Alaska. Um, we don't know the cause. Um, some carcasses have died of ship strikes. Some have been entangled. Some are very thin, but we don't know why they're thin. Um, and these, I mean, there have been hundreds of dead whales. And really the question is, if these are the number of washing up on the shore, how many have died overall um, at sea? And from the, from the census of the overall population, which is based on counting whales migrating past the California coast, it looks like there's been another decrease in the, in the total population, um, as occurred in 99, 2000, when there was a, another unusual mortality event of hundreds of gray whales along the coast. So back in 1999-2000, there were, you know, in the order of 300 dead whales washed up along the coastline in a year, but the overall population actually declined by more like 5,000 animals. So we're not, it's not clear yet how, how this increased number of carcasses that have been observed relates to the overall mortality in the population, but it's likely to be sort of the tip of the of the iceberg or the melting iceberg, as we say these days. Um, so the, we may be looking at a at a recent decline in the gray whale population. The really dramatic effects that we're we're seeing now are, are are in the Arctic with loss of sea ice and changes in in habitat for all the ice dependent species. Um, obviously, war, you know, walruses are losing their, their holdouts and are on land, and there have been stampedes because of thousands of animals on, on land and being disturbed by people. Polar bears, um, we're well aware of the consequences for them. Uh, ring seals, hooded seals, you know, all these species that are ice dependent are, are already feeling the effects of climate change in the oceans. And our California gray whales, they feed in the Arctic and breed in Baja. That's the big question of how do those changes 
affect gray whales? Do they feed in different places? They have a longer migration because they're going further north to feed. And does that longer migration make it harder for them to have enough food on board to cope with the migration? I mean, these are all questions that we we raise and don't know the answers to, to yet. So it seems yeah. after 30 years of uh, doing marine mammal science, you got more questions. Absolutely. That's, that's the way of science. Some answers, many questions, but that keeps us going. So if a young girl or boy listening to this uh, says, wow, I, I would really want to grow up and be a marine mammal vet, uh, what, what would you say? What would they do? I think that would be fantastic. The more vets we have working in this field, the better. I think um, it's important to get some experience by volunteering with your local marine mammal center. There are plenty of of not just rehabilitation centers, but um, science labs working on marine mammals, anatomy labs, museums that will collect bones. Um, so volunteer with an organization locally so you can be exposed to these, these animals and just keep wanting to do it. Um, there may not be jobs initially, but there will, there's plenty to do and we will find a way to ensure you're gainfully employed. Well, thank you so much for uh, being with us on the Rising Tide Ocean podcast. Really appreciate your work and uh, your commitment. You're welcome. It's a pleasure. Rising Tide is a production of Blue Frontier with hosts David Helvarg and Vicki Nichols-Goldstein and with the support of Natasha Benjamin and Ellie Curlow. Rising Tide's editing services and additional technical support are provided by Studio Cape May of San Diego, California. The theme song is written and performed by Ethan Kenvarg. You can find Rising Tide, the ocean podcast, at www.bluefront.org or download it anytime from Apple, Google, or Spotify. Off in the salty ocean, off where the waves roll free The sparkling water rises, then crashes to the sea Out amongst the breakers, you'll have no need to fear It's true, it's the blue frontier Tear, tear, Off in the salty ocean, off to the blue frontier Sparky, come here, buddy. Sparky, there you are. Good boy, Sparky.